is ticking through and I have a light, so we are good to go. So, Psych 213. All right, and I did push PC, so there we go. So, Psych 213, we did start talking about um, somatic symptom disorders and we started talking about dissociative disorders. We went over the general categories um, for somatic symptom disorder and now we're just kind of going through from our last recording little bits of, of um, you know, adding more detail on those disorders. We also talked about malingering. Remember, som somatic symptom disorder used to be somatoform disorder, so please forgive me if I interchange those. Even though it's been five years, six years, you get used to calling something something for a certain amount of time and it's tough to change it up. But somatic symptom disorders in general right, that category is very tough to kind of prove. It used to require no physical reason. Now you could have a physical reason, but again, when you get into that area where there's no physical reason, how do you know someone's not faking or malingering? And we talked a little bit about that. So let's talk about this disorder. This is somatic symptom disorder specifically. It involves multiple physical complaints that disrupt daily life. It can be specified as mild, moderate, severe, depending upon the number of symptoms expressed. And again, it may or may not have an underlying medical condition. It's not a requirement. In DSM-4 um, TR and all the way back, if we talked about somatoform disorders, you didn't have to have, or you, you, one of the specifiers was there was no medical reason for it. Now we've, we've changed that a little bit. Those with the disorder tend to worry about an illness with great detail, uh, and, and then, uh, or I should say, with a great deal of anxiety or worry. They interpret their symptoms as overly serious or threatening, despite evidence to the contrary. So someone might go, oh, you have Lyme's disease and it's treatable, and we can get you back on your feet, and they are stressed out or worried about it, that no, 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 it's gonna be more than that. It's gonna be the worst case scenario. So almost think about, Again, there's a lot of, like, there's anxiety and worry there. So think about an anxiousness that doesn't go away with, with calming you down. So I'm worried about these physical symptoms. I'm worried about how bad it's going to get. Um, I think worst case scenario, like I'm going to be the person that the medication doesn't work for, and I'm going to be the one that... Notice it says the disease concerns which cause distress but do not reach delusional intensity typically have lasted for at least six months. If it's prior to six months, then maybe it's an adjustment disorder, something you have to cope with. Remember, we talked about that in previous um, chapter. And if it was delusional, now we start to enter into maybe some delusional disorder, maybe some schizophrenic type of category, as opposed to, again, um, really being worried about it, but it's excessive worry. Yeah. Right, because if I have schizophrenia and I have a delusion about you know, being infected or getting infected or something like that, that's a much different, schizophrenia I would consider as more of a severe diagnosis. So like, for example, like one of my clients, like his big thing was like, he thought that he had Lyme's disease. Right. And despite being tested like five separate times for it, like blood tests and them all coming back negative, he was still like, I, I still think that I have it. Right. Like, that, is that just like the schizophrenia or could it have been? Again, could there be a co-occurring illness, like a, a co-occurring disorder of maybe somatic symptom disorder on top of a schizophrenia? I, I'm not going to, again, unless you know all the details, I'm not going to judge and say, no, it's absolutely not. I mean, there could be two disorders co-occurring at the same time. But if it's a delusional idea and there's been reoccurrent kinds of encouragement that, hey, no, you don't have it and they're still fixated on it. And again, that may also, it has like that little kind of obsessive compulsive feel to it. Yeah, yeah so I, I'm not gonna rule out that they didn't have a co-occurring disorder, but it has to be more than just a delusion. There has to be more going on there, okay? Um, again, with schizophrenia, there's more going on there with schizophrenia, yeah. They've got a whole gambit of problems. Here, it's just focused on the disorder. Here, it's just the symptoms. It would just be that. So that tends to be more singular. Um, 
Somatic symptom disorder, some possible causes, like why might it occur? Well, it's more frequent in those that have experienced a recent stressful life event, for those who have low socioeconomic status, and for those with fewer years of education. Think about what that's saying. So if you're, you know, excuse me for using some more layman terms here, but you're poor, you don't have very many economic means, well, what do you think? If you, you got a severe illness, do you think that could like make you even poorer? Do you think that would add to the stressors that you're already experiencing? You've got a full stress of life and of course on top of everything else your body's now giving up, or at least you perceive that. Does that kind of make sense? So, and then you go with fewer years of education, what do you mean by that? Well, again, if you're highly educated, you start to realize that just because, you know, even a prognosis, I give you a prognosis of, you know, I don't know, 40% chance that you're going to improve. Well, that's 40%. I can do some math in my head if I'm a little bit more educated and I can say, well, you know, I can think of certain situations um, where, again, I could come out on top. So education, believe it or not, has to do with, I think, again, cognitive abilities and the ability to rationally think through things. And I don't mean by rationally in, in terms of those that aren't highly educated, aren't rational. I just mean they have a better basis of knowledge, that they can come with a more rational decision from that basis of knowledge. Does that kind of make sense? I feel like I'm a little confusing today, and I apologize for that. Um, sexual abuse was found to be nine times more likely in the background of those with somatic symptom disorder than matched patients with major depressive disorder. So again, a life of trauma, 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 trauma. And could there be, if I'm a victim of sexual abuse, could I have some kind of fear of illness as a result of it? You know, damage or illness in some way. By its multi-symptom nature, somatic symptom disorder is difficult to treat and rarely remits on its own or rarely remits completely. Those who seek treatment are often shocked at the suggestion that maybe they should go talk to someone in mental health. Because they truly, if you were going to give them a lie detector test, they believe that there's something wrong with them. Think hypochondriasis. They believe there's something wrong with them, no matter what you say to the contrary. Um, because of the significant overlap with anxiety and depression, therapies for these disorders have provided some relief, you know, and some symptom reduction, but again, it doesn't take it all the way away. It's rarely complete. Um, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which we've talked about throughout this semester, is the favored treatment with stronger evidence of its effectiveness um, than found for other approaches. So again, CBD, I, I was a big believer in Cognitive Behavioral Therapy when I was doing work um, in both mental health and drug and alcohol, and again, it, it seems to show itself. It, it seems to be a very effective treatment in multiple areas. Again, it's not the best in all areas, but in multiple areas, it's, it shows itself. Somatic symptom disorder specified with predominant pain. Now, there's a bunch of symptoms, or I should have said this, there's a bunch of categories that used to be separate that seems to have been put together, right? So hypochondriasis, separate category in DSM-4, TR, and before, but now in somatic symptom disorder. Um, pain disorder psychosomatic pain disorder, right? So what we used to think is, you know, people who were suffering from fibromyalgia, we used to think it's all in their head. Well, that's been incorporated into this category and it's with the specifier of with predominant pain. So again, someone who's concerned with the symptoms of pain, maybe they do have fibromyalgia, but maybe it's exacerbated or made worse by psychological factors. Does that kind of make sense? So for these, those diagnosed with this specifier of with predominant pain, some antidepressant medications have produced release or relief, especially SSRIs. Again, SSRs tend to be a very good go-to medication. Cognitive behavioral therapy, widely used uh, to employ uh, pain management, stress reduction, activity enhancement. In randomized trials, that's been supported as being effective. So again, we, it seems to show itself, you know, it's this idea that change your behavior, your thinking will follow, or change your thinking, your behavior will follow. So intervene on one of those two domains, and you're going to get a positive outcome on the, hopefully, 
you know, or a more positive outcome. And then the last one is acceptance and commitment therapy. So what this one says essentially is that one accepts the fact that they have chronic pain. So maybe you do have fibromyalgia. Maybe it is this chronic pain disorder that you know really kind of flares up and you don't really have control over it. So acceptance and commitment therapy is, again, it changes one's perception on chronic pain by focusing not on pain control, but, but by accepting its presence and valuing your tolerance to it. So in other words, okay, we can't change that you're gonna have pain, but you can feel good about the fact that you're finding a way to motor through anyway. It's almost like giving yourself a pat on the back. Now I'm making it very simplistic. But, but if I can't change the pain, then I have to get you to accept it, right? Like maybe there's certain things. Okay, I use maybe not a good example, but this is what I have at, you know, this early in the morning. So I've got two bad knees. I know I have two bad knees. I know that every morning when I wake up, um, sometimes I struggle to get them moving. Like they just, I know it. Um, lately, one of them's been locking up. I know that it needs to be replaced but I'm trying to wait for as long as possible. So I have to accept, right, that I'm going to have problems with my knees. I'm not gonna be able to go and play catch and chase the dogs and do, I just can't do it. Oh, I can do it, but I'm gonna pay a huge price for it and I'm not willing to pay that price. So I have to accept that. And then kind of pat myself on the back. You know what, I'm still holding out. You know, I've been dealing with this for four years. I've got six more years I'd like to make it. Um, one more year, I'll be halfway through. Awesome, right? So again, you look for the positives. That's really what we're talking about here with acceptance and commitment therapy. You look for positives. Pat on the back. You know, reward yourself for your, your diligence, your resilience. You know, think of it that way. Conversion disorder. This is another one of those disorders, and I do have a film I'm going to show you when we're done with this recording. Um, conversion disorder, that's what we used to call it. Now what we call it is functional neurological symptom disorder. So conversion disorder just seems so much easier. So we'll just use that ter term. Conversion disorder refers to symptoms or deficits in voluntary motor or sensory functioning. The diagnosis requires the presence of one or more of these sorts of symptoms to the extent that it causes clinically significant distress or impairment or that it warrants some kind of medical evaluation and it's not accounted for by another condition. So with conversion disorder, there may not be a physical reason for this, but the complaints aren't gonna follow your normal medical pathways. Think of that that way. Um, there must be evidence that the symptoms are not explained by a neurological disease. Again, if it's explained by a neurological disease, then we're back to symptom somatic symptom disorder, right? That you have a medical condition, but you're overly concerned about it. No, no, no. This is where you're complaining of a medical condition. It has to do with voluntary motor movements or sensory input. And you, there's no neurological reason for it. So again, what we believe ultimately is that psychological trauma is causing a physical complaint that allows you in some way to escape from the psychological trauma. It says, varies by type, by degree, whether a psychological or psychosocial stressor is present. Sometimes there seems to be a, a stressor present, something that triggered it. Maybe it's something else un unconsciously that we're not aware of. So that's a possibility too. Some clues that suggest diagnosis of conversion disorder are the following. So number one, symptoms do not correspond to known anatomical pathways. Glove anesthesia is the most, is the most uh, I shouldn't say common, but it's the most well-known. I'll say it that way. Glove anesthesia is this idea that if you were to put a glove, you know, think about how a glove fits on your hand. It, it cuts off right at the wrist, right? So glove anesthesia is someone who complains that they cannot feel anything in their hands. Their hands are numb, they can't feel anything, um, they can't sense anything with their hands, that it cuts right off at the wrist. Well, what we know is there's three nerve pathways that run into your hand. 
It's not possible for it to cut off right at the wrist like you were wearing a glove. That doesn't fit our, our understanding of, of anatomy. So there's got to be something more going on here. And what the belief is that psychologically I am blocking this off. Freud would have said, and again, a lot of this comes out of Freud because he saw a lot of conversion disorder folk. Freud would have said someone has an uncontrollable urge, for example, to masturbate. They don't, they feel guilty about that. They don't want to do that. They, that's an uncontrollable urge. And so they get caught up with anxiety over it. And then if I have no hand, if I can't feel my hand, then I, I can't do it. So psychosomatic, you know, caused by psychological factors. So that's one, the symptoms don't correspond to known anatomical pathways. Number two, la belle et difference. And what that means is that there's an obvious lack of concern. So someone comes in and goes, yeah, I can't feel my hand. It's, uh, you know, it's cut off right here at the wrist. I I'll be okay. They don't seem to be bothered by the fact, you know, so that's another possible symptom. Um, inconsistency of symptoms. They cannot b speak, but they can cough in a normal tone. So if I can cough in a normal tone, my vocal cords are still intact, I can make noise, why can't I speak? Or they uh, can move a paralyzed body part while they're asleep. So they say they can't move, they're paralyzed from the waist down, but when we watch them at night, they're moving their legs around. So, and there's no neurological reason for that, that, that they would be paralyzed to begin with. So that's really telling you something's going on here. But again, am I malingering? Am I faking it to get a gain? Or is it really occurring? It gets tricky. May include motor functions of the skeletal um, system, maybe sensory functions or other. Um, so again, and that's some of the stuff we see. Notice it says motor functions, um, partial or complete paralysis of the arms, legs, or other body parts. Selective loss of function, dig this one. The person has writer's cramp in which a person cannot write but they can use the same muscles to eat and do other things. So if writer's cramp, I can't write, but I can still drive my car. Doesn't make sense, right? Conversion disorder. Contractions involving rigid flexions of fingers, toes, knees, elbows, other body parts, almost like you, know, you can't bend it, you're locked in. Um, Astasia, abrasia, which is um, the ability to move legs while lying or sitting, but not stand or walk. Speech disturbances, mutism, either total inability to speak, or aphonia, which is uh, ability to speak only in a whisper. So I can only speak like this. And you go, can you speak up? So again, what's causing that? Um, convulsions or similar epileptic seizures, but no reason for it. Tick disorders, you know, like ticks, muscular twitching, um, usually around the eyes or mouth. Again, think about somebody under such stress that their body, they've kind of shut off a piece of their body voluntarily. Voluntarily, what I mean by that is that they are doing it to themselves but it may be involuntarily caused by the stress. Again, I feel like I'm confusing today and I apologize for that. Sensory functions, let's talk about sensory functions. What would you see? Disturbances in vision, total or partial blindness, tunnel vision, blurred vision, double vision, night blindness. Um, disturbances in hearing involving total or partial deafness. Anesthesia, general loss of sensitivity, uh, of stimulation of the skin. Again, glove anesthesia, and I gave you that explanation. Analgesia, which is an insensitivity to superficial pain stimuli, uh, uh, you know, applied to the skin. So I go and I, I trigger you. I try to, you know, touch your skin, but you don't seem to be able to feel it. But again, there's no physical reason for that to be occurring. So it must be in your head. Um, Paresthesis, which is false sensations, tingling, feelings in the skin, things like that. So again, it could be any of these. Um, some other symptoms of conversion disorder, someone who feels like they got a lump in their throat, there's something going on there, coughing spells, 
persistent belching and sneezing that seems to be, again, not due to some kind of ulcer or indigestion kind of problem. There's no reason for it. So why are you doing it all the time? That almost seems like a tick. You think about it, belching or sneezing, almost like an involuntary tick. Um, some causal factors, what might cause it or trigger conversion disorder? Well, psychoanalytic perspectives, that's Freudian, says that conversion symptoms are the product of unconscious psychosexual conflict, that it's essentially a form of auto-suggestion or self-hypnosis to express or relieve conflict. So you've got this stress, this anxiety, your libido and your id want to take over for whatever reason. You can't deal with it, and so you shut down. The behavioral perspective presumes that there's a secondary gain by you being blind or by you not being able to speak or by you not being able to touch something that somebody else you know, might be able to do it for you, so there's a secondary gain. Or maybe you're modeling somebody else who does it. This is their way of coping, and you're modeling it. Um, notice it says, in many cases, the immediate motive for developing a bodily symptom may be to escape from some emotionally unbearable situation. Um, and while we say that maybe you learned it from another significant other person in your world, it doesn't seem to be a genetic link. We can't, we can't find a genetic um, link, at least not, not right now. Um, some other factors. Maybe your mirror neurons have gone awry. Um, if you recall from Psych 101, we've, you know, maybe if you had me, we talk about mirror neurons. And mirror neurons are neurons that fire in your brain when you see someone do something, and then they fire again when you repeat it. They're mirror neurons. What we believe is they are the basis of observational learning. So what we think is that maybe these mirror neurons have some kind of social contagion of hysterical symptoms that may occur within families. So the inhibitory component of the mirror neuron system, which normally prevents us from imitating everything we observe, maybe it's not working, and so they see somebody act hysterically, and then they repeat it. And what we mean by hysterical is, remember, uh, that's the belief behind this, is that conversion disorders are hysterical symptoms. They're caused by hysteria, right? Some kind of anxious, neurotic anxiety, if you will. Um, and then people were repeating that. Because again, it, it seems to happen in families. Is it learning? Is it behavioral? Is it something else? We don't know. So any questions about that? All right, so, and I was kind of wrong, and I apologize for this. There is still a separate category for hypochondriasis. Again, hypochondriasis, what we, we've changed the name, however. So, um, and with conversion disorder, what do you think is gonna be the therapy? Do you think meds are gonna work? I mean, maybe I could give you some meds to take away some anxiety or some depression, but that's just surface symptom. It's really talk therapy, trying to get through what is causing, what's the stressor causing this. And sometimes even through therapy, people will switch. So now I don't have glove anesthesia, but now I can't move my knee. So sometimes conversion disorders will actually be converted to something else, but they'll still have the same problem until they work through whatever it is that's triggering it. So now we're switching gears. This is um, illness anxiety disorder, categorized as hypochondriasis in the DSM-4, but redefined in the DSM-5. Notice it says this disorder involves a preoccupation with the fear that one has or will acquire a serious disease, although somatic symptoms, if present, are mild and frequently transient, or the person has normal physio physiological functioning. So this might be better explained instead of somatic symptom disorder. With somatic symptom disorder, that used to be a form uh, I should have said this before. Again, I'm sorry, I'm off today. Um, somatic symptom disorder, there was a disorder called somatoform disorder. And somatoform disorder required that you had five different complaints of physiological symptoms in five different major areas, none of them interrelated. 
So in other words, you keep going back to the doctor for a physical complaint, a physical complaint, a physical complaint. None of them seem to have any basis, or maybe they do, but they're not related in any way, and all before the age of 30. Now, if you're old like me, and you're in your 50s, you've gone to the doctor for multiple complaints over your lifespan. All of them are legitimate in one way or another, but you don't obsess over it, right? So again, that's kind of somatic symptom disorder. This is illness anxiety disorder. So here, maybe you do, maybe my example was bad, maybe you do have Lyme's disease, but now you exacerbate it, you make it worse, you're gonna die, or no, you just have mild symptoms of a Lyme disease, or maybe you don't have Lyme disease at all, you're just showing some symptoms, they seem to be mimicking that, but maybe it's just the flu and it'll pass, but you think, oh my goodness, I have Lyme's disease, or you go one step further, you go, if it's not Lyme disease, it must be West Nile virus. So and, and it doesn't matter what people do to calm you down and to reassure you, again, you, you seem to get locked in. So that's illness anxiety disorder. So sorry that I kind of confused you and got those two together. If we need to talk more about the other one, let me know. Um, reaction to these mild symptoms um, or existing medical conditions is clearly excessive disproportionate to their actual severity, does not alleviate by medical evaluation that finds no presence of the disease. So even though the doctor says, you do not, we just got the test back, you don't have Lyme disease, you're good. They go, oh, the test is wrong. How do you know the test wasn't contaminated? How do you know the accuracy of the lab was right? Because they're so set on believing they have it. Does that kind of make sense? And your person that you were talking about with schizophrenia, again, may have had somatic symptom disorder if it was multiple symptoms, physical symptoms in multiple areas. But if it got locked into one disorder, then maybe it was illness anxiety disorder in addition to schizophrenia. But again, it can't have this kind of delusional, that delusional component is what sets it apart. It's what makes it, if you had, you know, Lyme's disease, is that a kind of semi-serious condition? Yeah, if you don't get it treated, right? So again, it could be. So there's some legitimacy to the fear there. But when you're that delusional, it doesn't make sense. That's when we get into that schizophrenic realm. So can I help? Um, notice it says the presence of the fear disease becomes central to their self-image, can disrupt family, social, occupational relationships. So they truly are so locked into this disease, it takes on a life of its own that they believe they have it. Um, based on studies of hypochondriasis, there's geno no genetic influence is evident. We can't see why this is, you know, it's not like a, we, we just can't find a genetic component to it. Illness anxiety disorder can co-occur with several conditions, including anxiety, depressive disorders, other somatic symptom disorders. So you could actually have somatic symptom, predominant pain with illness anxiety disorder, in my opinion, there's a little bit of overlap here. And we may still see this being encompassed into somatic illness disorder, somatic symptom disorder at some point. But because it's so unique and almost specific to one disorder, it seems to stand out right now. Um, notice it says the psychodynamic clinicians have assumed that patients defend against poor self-opinion by displacing at attention onto physical sensations and symptoms. Learning and cognitive influences say that maybe it developed because of misinterpretation of bodily symptoms. Maybe they learned this is their way of coping. Who knows? So again, there's a lot of different explanations. The treatment for uh, illness anxiety disorder is pharmacological um, approaches. Again, SSRIs, which is what you knew was going to be coming, right? They seem to have produced positive results in hypochondriasis, the condition this used to be. You know, it's been kind of expanded a little bit. And so it should work for illness anxiety disorder. Um, also, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy formats involving stress management, desensitization to anxiety-provoking situations, exposure to troubling physical symptoms. And notice there does seem to be a history of childhood disorders, illnesses that are associated with this disorder. 
So I'm going to let you in on my little piece. Maybe it's someone who's been sickly as a child. Like they went through a lot of illnesses for whatever reason, a lot of intervention with the medical, all maybe legitimate. But now as an adult, they're overly focused on every single illness they think they have. Right? And they're not reassured by the doctor. But think about it. If I had a history as a child of constantly having things wrong with me, why would I believe a doctor today as an adult that everything's going to be okay? Because I believed that as a child and then things weren't. And then I believed it as a child and things weren't. And now as an adult, you're telling me everything's okay and I'm not believing it. So you can kind of see how that might take off. Um, other uh, psychological uh, factors affecting other medical conditions. Again, this is a DSM-5 category uh, for cases where there's evidence of a psychological factor interfering with treatment or having significant, significant influence on medical outcome. Um, for these people, uh, behavioral or psychological factors negatively impact the condition, again, increasing the risk of death or disability. So it seems to exacerbate or make worse these conditions. To apply, um, if you really want to use this title of psychological factors affecting other medical conditions, um, the inferring psychological or behavioral factors are not better explained by another disorder and should uh, occur in close relationship with worsening of the medical condition. Again, you could have mild, moderate, severe, um, or profound, and I'm not sure why we have severe twice. I have a feeling this would be profound. Um, so just letting you know, I'll have to take a look. Apparently I do have an, an error in my, my PowerPoint. I thought I reviewed it, but. And then some other categories. So other somatic symptom disorders, kind of like the default category. Symptoms might not be there for six months yet, and so it falls into this category. And, and maybe it's not, as, not explained by Adjustment disorders, there's a better definition. Again, adjustment disorder seems to be the default when you don't have a better title, if you want to think of it that way. Um, specific symptoms may not be included in the disorders that we see. So maybe it's symptoms that are outside that realm. Um, and pseudocesis is false symptoms of pregnancy. Um, that might belong in this category. That's so rare. Um, that people believe they're pregnant when they're not. But that was one of the conditions Sigmund Freud worked with. Bertha O was a patient sent to Sigmund Freud by another physician. The patient claimed she was pregnant. The physician did um, evaluation. She was not pregnant, right? Sent her to Freud and said, Freud, can you please examine her? She thinks she's pregnant. She's not pregnant. She won't listen to me essentially. And Freud worked with Bertha O. Bertha O actually believed psycho in, in one of his sessions that she was giving birth, that her water had broken, she was giving birth. She was never pregnant. But that sounds like a conversion disorder. Again, psychological stress turned into a physical complaint, but it's so unique, it's so rare that putting in conversion disorder doesn't really fit, so we put it here in other of an other category. So those are our somatic symptom disorders. Any questions about that? So now let's talk about dissociative disorders for the rest of class. All right. These um, involve certain altered states of consciousness and disruptions of memory and identity. So if you recall last class when we got together, um, before I started recording, we did have a presentation on dissociative, dis uh, dissociative identity disorder multiple personality disorder falls into this category. Depersonalization disorder falls in this category, so we'll talk about these. Dissociative amnesia, that's the third one that falls in here. So dissociative amnesia is memory loss for no physical reason. Seems to be psychologically induced. If you had a head trauma, you had brain damage, we can explain that memory loss away. But this, we can't explain away. So. Keep in mind, it says it's important to consider cross-cultural factors when looking at these disorders because some altered states might be culturally encouraged or endorsed. You know, people who believe that they, you know, take on another spirit, that they're psychically, you know, 
directing psychic energy through some other realm. That sounds like maybe a dissociative disorder, but maybe, maybe that's encouraged for religious reasons or something else. So you know, be thinking about that. Again, these conditions are relatively rare. You're not gonna find a lot of research on them. They're tough to kind of research because how do you know if someone's faking or not? Malingering becomes a big problem. Um, and they are typically associated with stressful or traumatic experiences. That's some of the stuff we see. So let me go ahead and flip through here. In fact, I was just thinking I have two films I wanna show you. So um, just to let you know. So here are our disorders. Uh, associative uh, or disassociative, think also that word, dis, dissociative disorders, disassociate. You disassociate from memory. You disassociate from your identity. You disassociate from consciousness, dissociative disorders. So you separate yourself. Think of it that way. So dissociative amnesia, unexplained inability to recall important personal information, Again, some of these tend to be more common in females. Females tend to be the victims of sexual abuse, physical abuse more often than males, or I should say this, at least report it more often. So as a result, they tend to be identified and diagnosed with these more often. Um, dissociative identity disorder, that used to be called multiple personality disorder. We changed it in DSM-3 to 4 because it's not really a personality disorder, it never was. You're switching identities, but not personality. So we redefined it. And so we've been using this term for a while now. Um, notice it says key symptom is two or more distinct personality states. I, I still don't like the word that they use personality in there. I think they should say identity states. Um, with an inability to recall important personal information. So it's got this memory loss, and I'm switching identities. Depersonalization slash derealization disorder, persistent feelings of being detached or outside oneself, where you feel like you're just going through the motions. If you've ever been in a shock type situation where something is you know, initially so shocking, your body just becomes overwhelmed, you feel like you go through the motions, but you, you don't really feel anything. Um, maybe it even feels like you're looking down on yourself. You're not even, you're even detached from one's body. Believe it or not, the experience of depersonalization many people have had, it's actually a common occurrence. When it becomes your way of functioning and dealing with stress, then it becomes a disorder. So just so you know. So let's go ahead and take a look through these. So a dissociative amnesia. Dissociative amnesia involves, again, loss of memory for a certain period of time that's too extensive to be explained by ordinary forgetting. The memory loss is not due to physical causes, usually associated with a traumatic event. Unlike amnesic disorders or amnesic syndrome disorders caused by neurological events, the capacity to learn new information remains intact. So this seems to only be a loss of personal information what your name is, where you live, whether you're married or not, that personal information. You still can learn new information. So it's not just a, a regular memory disorder, there's something more. It seems to be hitting a specific kind of memory, episodic memory, if you will, as opposed to, again, other kinds of memory where you, you know, somatic memory, you know, or procedural memory where you know how to do things and you know what things are this is something different. It's more personal of a more personal nature. The different kinds of amnesia that we sometimes see here, localized amnesia, that's failure to recall events that happened during a certain time period. Maybe you don't remember what happened to you Friday night. You have no memory of Friday night whatsoever. You can't remember anything of the detail. The last you remember is you came home from work at five o'clock and you have no memory after that. You woke up Saturday morning and you have no memory what happened over the night. So localized to a specific period of time. We have selective amnesia. Occurs when a person can recall some but not all the events of a particular period. You remember a car accident, but you don't remember witnessing it. Does that kind of make sense? You don't know specific details in it. 
Um, sometimes it can get really odd, like you don't remember a certain person. You almost dissect them out of your memory system, like you never had a brother. So it's a specific kind of memory that gets, so selective memory. Generalized amnesia involves complete loss of memory for one's life, perhaps one's identity. It's much rarer because now you're losing a whole, like your, your whole life. You wake up in the park, you have no idea who you are, you have no idea where you came from, you don't know how old you are, you have no memory whatsoever. Again, personal nature. Tends to occur with those who have experienced combat, sexual assault, or extreme stress, and more likely to involve what's called dissociative fugue. Now, dissociative fugue is now a subset. It used to be a separate disorder. Dissociative fugue is where you disassociate your memory and then you move to a new location, oftentimes, and assume a new identity. Now, back about 20, 30 years ago, you were much more able to do this. You know, think about it. You're, maybe I'm a professor here in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I, I get a stressful situation. I snap. I find myself in Michigan. I become an electrician. I say my name's Ron. Right? Ron the electrician. And so I start up. Today, when you go anywhere, you need to say a proof of ID, so security card, all that kind of stuff. Back in the day, you could walk in and say, look, I want to be an you know, electrician's apprentice. Um, you know, again, you necessarily have to have the educational requirements today. Because of all terrorism and everything else, we get more particular about knowing your background. Back in the day, I could pay you under the table. It would be much different, different world. So again, the course of dissociative amnesia is variable. Um, some patients spontaneously recover while others develop a more chronic amnesia. In a review of 25 patients, they found that the most common presentation was selective chronic loss uh, memory that did not have a set and onset. So again, it seems to be a loss of, of a detail of a memory that you just have always just kind of written out. And it seems to be chronic. Dissociative fugue, just a little bit more information about that. Notice it stipulates both memory impairment and sudden travel away from home or regular surroundings. Disruption in personal identity, so the person is uncertain about important information, including name, residence, profession. The individual with dissociative fugue may wander for a period of time, ranging from brief journeys, a few hours to a few days, to several months, and may go over you know, thousands and thousands of miles. Now, maybe you heard about the person, right, who, uh, I don't know, uh, is married, they have kids, all of a sudden they disappear. Like, you, they find them seven years later, they're in California, remarried with new kids, new family. Mm, that's pretty, be, I mean, maybe if there was dissociative amnesia, but normally these people come out of it, they're like, oh crap, I, I'm, I'm a professor from Gettysburg, what the hell am I doing here? And usually it's not years and years and years. I mean, I would argue that that might be someone who wants to have an affair and they're purposefully doing it and trying to use, or trying to malinger to try to protect themselves. Most often the person with dissociative fugue does not form a new identity. Again, normally they don't, but they could. Um, when the formation of a new identity does occur, it appears to include more outgoing and uninhibited traits than the original one. So maybe they're very kind of quiet, mired, you know, mild-mannered. And then, of course, they create this new identity that's very outgoing and sociable. And maybe unconsciously it's what they've always wanted to be, but they've always felt trapped. And so this is their, this is their way. They snap. You know, and I hate to use that word snap, but they have a, a psychological trauma. Maybe, maybe not. That really kind of shakes their world and they take on this new persona. For a short period of time. But again, oftentimes they just wander not knowing who they are. Sometimes the new identities can be quite extensive. Assumption of a different name, a new residence, involvement in new complex social activities and functions, sometimes not. The amnesia associated with dissociative fugue can remain after the fugue state remits. So they come home, but they still have amnesia. So maybe part of 
what happened, you know, still is there. So again, I still don't know all the details of my life. And remember, it could be selective amnesia. So I don't remember certain details. Um, severe stressors or overwhelming life or events are typically related to the onset. And the onset is often hastened by removal from this stressful situation. So the offset, I should say. So again, stressful situation seems to trigger it. As soon as the stressful situation is gone, then it seems to go away on its own. So it does seem to be induced by stress. We can't always identify the stressor, but there seems to be some kind of component there. Just not sure. Dissociative amnesia, some ca causal factors. Well, there's no clear evidence for genetic or biological factors, just like all the other ones in these categories. Uh, multiple stressors or overwhelming life events are typically related to the onset. And again, you know, the most common uh, appears like the most common precipitating factor. Um, like for fugue, for example, like me leaving my area and wandering seems to be marital discourse. So there's some kind of concern. Um, my marriage is failing. Maybe there was an affair and all of a sudden I have a break and I, I just wander for a while. And then eventually I come back. Maybe financial or occupational problems. Again, I'm overwhelmed in my own home, so I leave my home. Or maybe some war-related events, so maybe, maybe something like that. Something happened, and, and again, I, this is my way of coping. Soldiers who wander around, don't know who they are, don't know where they're supposed to be. They've witnessed such trauma. This is their way of trying to escape in their mind. Think of it that way. Well, treatment, um, typically the approaches involve hypnosis or uh, maybe some drugs. The drug sodium uh, amytal, um, together with free association to uncover the unconscious memories, bring them to the surface. Again, you can see it's a very psychoanalytic approach, but a lot of these, again, if there's no physical cause, we can't identify it, then it's gotta be something in the unconscious, so it makes sense that's where you have to go. Notice it says no careful studies of the effectiveness of these treatments uh, exist. Because how do you study psychoanalytic treatments? You're talking about the unconscious, stuff you can't see. It's really tough to kind of support it. Because people with dissociative disorders are quite suggestible, maybe there's a risk that the recovered memories may be actually therapy or a therapist caused. In other words, maybe, maybe events didn't happen to you because you seem to be highly suggestible. Could it be that, again, I suggest events happened to you that really didn't? So there's some fear of that in this treatment. Um, any questions of that? And usually the other treatments for dissociative amnesia and others, think about if you had memory loss, what do you think that would cause? What do you think personally you'd feel? What? Anxiety, Anxiety right? And depressed, do you think you feel, might feel depressed? So what do you think the treatment's gonna focus on? Treating the anxiety and depression. What are we gonna use? SSRIs and right, some cognitive behavioral therapy to kind of deal with the depression because once we get the stressor gone, then hopefully your reason for having the memory loss is gone and, and the memory will come back. That's what we hope. Again, there's no physical reason for it. Next category, dissociative identity disorder, DID, what we formerly called multiple personality disorder, perhaps the most unusual dissociative disorder the diagnosis requires the presence of two or more distinct personalities which disrupt a person's personal identity, identity and sense of personal control. Dissociative fugue is common. So here we have dissociative identity and you going off or wondering and not knowing who you are is common. You disassociating your memory is common as part of dissociative identity disorder. Again, one of your identities doesn't know where they live or whatever, so they wander around, the other identity does. Maybe one of your identities is very calm, mild-mannered, and your other identity is very brash and outgoing. So you can kind of see that. The number of personalities may range from two to more than 100, but in half of the cases, the individual has 10 or fewer. So only in you know, less than half the cases is more than that. 
Typically, um, there's several years lapse uh, between the onset of the first symptoms and diagnosis. The course tends to be fluctuating and chronic. It may be for maybe all of your college years, you spend in a certain identity. You get out of college and you take on a new identity. So it could be years that you're in that, that identity. It could switch in more transient ways. According to DSM-4TR, DID is much more commonly diagnosed in women than men by a factor of nine. So about nine times more common in men, or in women than men. Um, it says here, according to DSM-5, now that was in the DSM-4TR, DSM-5, while women do predominate the adult clinical settings, Males are less likely to acknowledge a background of trauma and therefore might be underdiagnosed, which is what we suspect with depressive disorders and anxiety disorders. So same is true here. There's been a sharp rise in the incidence of DID over the past few decades, increasing from a few hundred cases worldwide to over 30,000 in uh, North America alone. Um, and this explosive increase corresponds to increased public interest and popular portrayals uh, of the condition in books and films. When The Three Faces of Eve and Sybil came out, that really made this di diagnosis more commonly known. And in that, within, I want to say, I think it was 12 months or two years of the book Sybil coming out, the number of cases jumped from the hundreds up to like 3,000. So are we just getting better at diagnosing or... Are people inadvertently imitating that, or is there something else going on, or is malingering, or, or what? Remember Ken Bianchi, we talked about this in chapter 16, the legal chapter. Ken Bianchi, the hillside strangler, tried to pretend they had DID, that one of his identities was an angry, I believe it was an angry lesbian who was pissed and wanted to then kill these women, strangled them. Um, it was found that he was faking malingering. Um, he was caught in cross-examination by a very trained psychologist. But again, gives more credence to this. You, you hear more and more. Split. You know, more and more movies that come out that depict this and then people wonder if they have a fight club, things like that. Um, there have been more reports in various personalities and DID uh, show physiological variations. Um, like being different people. We've seen um, some processing of brain waves that seem to be different when different identities come out. Now, what does that mean? I don't know if we fully sorted through that. One identity might have a lisp. One might have a limp. The other one doesn't. One might, one might be blind and the other ones aren't. So again, is there a little conversion disorder going on there too? A little functional neurological symptom disorder, overriding that. Says here, um, what we could say, well, maybe they're role playing that, maybe they're faking it. But when we have people role play, um, notice it says, a person who was role playing multiple personality disorder was able to produce EEG differences across roles that were larger than those diagnosed by two DID patients themselves. So could it be an, an underlying feigning or faking of these identities? And could that change your brain waves? It, it seems like it's logical it may. Um, this indicates EEG data reflect intensity of concentration and mood changes rather than inherent brain differences. So we can find some EEG differences. One video that I show, that I'm gonna show you, um, either today or when we first get back together again in the next class, is an interview session with a guy who switches identities. Well, I don't show the whole film because at the end of the film, they actually do a study of his brain waves. And what they tell him is that his brain waves are different when he's different identities. And so he's like, oh, so there is this person living inside me. Well, yeah, or maybe, again, you're just creating that and you're creating those for whatever reason. So again, we can't say the brain waves, you know, really support the idea that there's different personalities. It just might be that when you feign those personalities, you change or alter brain waves. Kind of like an actor who goes into a certain role. And that's one of the things that we heard in our presentation 
again, there seems to be a, a number of actors who have come out recently saying they have DID. Does that make a person a better actor? Are those different DID identities of those individuals nothing more than acts? It's kind of interesting. I, I don't know. I don't have the answer. Um, symptoms of DID can also be evoked by common interviews uh, or therapy techniques. So I can, again, trigger these symptoms to come out. Um, in a study done in 1985, they reported that they were able to create different personality presentations among college students using the prevailing methods for DID. So subjects in the experimental group displayed several symptoms of DID, including different identities or personalities uh, with different behaviors and opposite tastes in an experiment done on college students who didn't have DID. So could these be created by the therapist? One of the big controversies of DID is that maybe it's all, is that maybe it's created by therapists. It's always been a complaint. And now there's maybe some research in 1985 suggests, hmm. Now again, it's 1985. I haven't seen a lot of research since then. And we know that one research study does not say no. It's not conclusive enough. But it, it puts a question mark in there. Twin studies have not produced evidence of inheritability, um, although there have been reports of DID that runs in families. So again, is it learned? No significant neurological or EEG abnormalities were found among 50 DID patients, which again suggests no evidence for underlying brain uh, etymology or, or, or causes, etiology, I should say. Um, abuse histories are reported in 70 to 97% of the DID patients. So, um, and with incest cited most commonly. Here's the way I want you to think about that. Imagine you're a young child and one of your caregivers comes into your bedroom and molests you. All right? You're a child. The next morning, you have to face that parent at the dinner table. They're the per person that is taking care of your health. So how do you cope with that? You wall off the experience that happened the night before. It wasn't you. It was a dream. It was something else. You don't want to think about it when you're dealing with your parent today. So does that trauma or that ability to wall off then create that ability to wall off other events later on in life? So 70 to 97 percent having a, an abuse history makes sense, especially if incest is the key one. Because they also you're going to cope as a kid. These events are generally considered central to the etiology of the disorder as well as responsible for the gender difference of incidents. The ability of normal people to produce um, apparently different personalities suggests that maybe it's hypnosis or some kind of auto-suggestion. Maybe there's a sociocultural model that maybe that, you know, our memories are not as locked in. Maybe, maybe therapists are creating this a little bit. The model suggests that symptoms of multiple personality uh, tend to develop after contact with therapists. Maybe therapists are the ones suggesting you have multiple identities. And I would say that all of us do anyway. Think about yourself. Are you different in class than you are outside of class? Are you different with your parents than you are with your friends? Are you different at work than you are at church or outside? So you switch who you are or how you behave in all of those situations, correct? You control it. But with DID, this is a person who has different identities or selves, but can't control it. So I wonder if maybe they don't have the ability to determine when an identity should come out or not. Maybe that's really what they're learning is when to bring out these different parts of self that they've always been aware of, but don't think they are. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. I think there's more going on there. <coughs> so it's one of the things we have to think about. The treatment, the process of DID and treatment is really um, developing trust and cooperation, 
Understanding the network of alters, that's what they're called, these different identities are called alters. Treatment of the trauma and work towards reintegrating the different identities. So it's not about getting rid of any of these. This person needs all of these. It's about honing in on which are the ones that are really supporting the person and which are the ones that are in the way. And then again, having the person control when they flip from one to another. Hypnosis is common treatment approach. But again, if this person is highly susceptible, again, are they creating identities at the suggestion of the therapist in hypnosis? It's possible. Notice it says no well-controlled efficacy studies are available for DID, whether pharmacological or psychotherapy. We just don't have good research on this. And again, I think that's part of the controversy. Dissociative disorders, the last category here is depersonalization, derealization. Involves um, feelings of detachment or separation from oneself or from feelings or, you know, or feelings of, um, you know, objects or people and their surroundings seeming unreal. So it's almost like you feel like you're in shock. You're just going through the motions. The feelings when transitory are relatively common. DSM at five estimates that half of all adults have experienced some moment of depersonalization or derealization. Half of all, result, or of, of all adults. I think I have. I've been through some traumatic situations and I just remember going through the motion and not really feeling anything. I remember receiving a phone call about my brother being killed in, as a drunk, you know, by a drunk driver. And I, I'm just telling you, I, I remember getting up out of bed but it was surreal. The whole morning, packing to go home, to, to get with the family, you know, talking with my, my wife at the time, all that stuff, just, I was just going through the motions, but I wasn't feeling anything. I was detached from feeling. Again, extreme stressor, it makes sense. It's not my way of coping normally. In depersonalization, derealization disorder, such feelings are persistent or reoccurrent. They caused marked distress. They're associated with impairment in daily functioning. Again, it almost becomes your way of coping with the world. Um, the average onset appears to be around age 16. Onset after age 25 is rare. So if you're going to have this, if this be, again, I think that leans, lends credence to the idea that it becomes a way of coping with stress, coping with your world by separating, depersonalizing. It's not quite to the extent where I take on a whole new identity and block memories, but it is a separation from experience. The episodes may be very brief or last for years. The course tends to be chronic and worsens under stressful situations. Some causes, we don't know. Like with a lot of the disorders here in this category, we don't know. There's no data on family or genetic influences. Um, DSM-5 says there is a clear connection between the disorder and childhood interpretation of trauma. <coughs> Excuse me. So again, how you interpret trauma as a, as a kid may set you up to using this as an adult. Again, that's why the onset seems to be prior to age 16 as opposed to afterwards. <coughs> Treatment, SSRIs do not appear to be more effective than placebos. So again, maybe this is self-created. It's something to think about. At least that was in a small trial, uncontrolled trial. The opiate receptor, excuse me, the opiate receptor site blocker nalatrexone was associated with a 30% improvement in symptoms. Again, what's our treatment here? Because these are dissociative disorders. They fall back in the hypnosis category. Again, our belief is that underlying unconscious forces are at work. So hypnosis, a variety of psychotherapies have been employed, but there's no solid data on, on you know, what works best. Every case seems to be different. So we, we can't say this is the best way. <coughs> Some other categories, again, to wrap up this PowerPoint, we do have a couple other categories that seem to be, you know, um, almost default categories, if you will. Other dissociative um, disorders, um, there are sub-threshold dissociative conditions. Symptoms may be milder or more acute. 
Um, unspecified dissociative disorder, again, used for those cases where the conditions can't be described by other conditions. And the final one, here's a concluding comment. So this is just something to think about. When we talk about somatic symptom and dissociative disorders, um, notice it says here, the attempt to classify a diverse set of troubling conditions. That's what we're trying to do here. These are a diverse set. They're very troubling to the person. They're also very rare. It's very difficult to distinguish between malingering and factitious disorder, where it's self-induced for nothing more than attention. Um, and that is also seems to have some overlap with other conditions. Riley, just like you said that, you know, your patient who has schizophrenia seemed to show some symptoms that would look like a hypochondriasis or look like a somatic symptom disorder, but they're more delusional. So again, there's such overlap, it makes it really difficult. Um, but they're also very interesting. You know, DID is a fascinating disorder. Whatever's causing it, whether it's self-induced or not, it's a pretty fascinating disorder. So are hypochondriasis and other conditions. So we like to study it from a clinical aspect, but we're just not sure. In fact, I've got to tell you, I'll just share this last comment before we, um, I turn off my recorder. We were deciding, the psychology department gets together on a regular basis to look at our curriculum, to look at what disorders should we mand, you know, mandatorily cover, what should we let go. And there was a discussion to say, you know, we shouldn't talk about dissociative disorders and somatic illness disorders or somatic symptom disorders because they're so rare, they're so they're unknown, they have such overlap with other categories. Um, and my statement was that's exactly why they need to stay on the mandatory list. Because they are rare, because they are unique, because they are conditions that are beyond normal functioning. And if this is an abnormal behavioral, you know, abnormal psychology class, then they have every right to be here. Even if we don't fully understand them, we don't know best treatment, we're not even sure if they exist, the fact that people suffer from these types of conditions and we don't understand it is exactly the reason why it should be here. So I'll just leave that as the end of the recording. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it.